uh, Esau did. We want to make sure that we're not trading what he has for us for anything else. That C.S. Lewis quote, if you aim for heaven, you get earth thrown in. If you aim for earth, you wind up losing both. Today we're going to look at Genesis, the rest of Genesis, the order of creation. Very straightforward account, tons of debate over exactly how everything plays out. But it's very straightforward. Here's a structure that you can look at that will kind of help you see how Genesis 1 is laid out. So you see there you've got one Genesis 1-2 says the earth was formless and void. Formless is a wasteland. It's uninhabitable. It's void. It's empty. Nothing is living there. And then days 1 through 3, God makes it suitable for living. So he, he creates the conditions in which um, life can exist on earth. And in days 4 through 6, he then fills the earth. Birds, animals, plants, people. And then there are pairs of days. 1 and 4, 2 and 5, 3 and 6 all go together. And they... First day, he creates light. Fourth day, he creates the things that bear light, sun, moon, stars. Second day, he creates the skies and the sea. Fifth day, he creates the things that live in the skies and the sea, birds and fish. Third day, he creates um, the land and plants. And then the sixth day, he creates things that live on the land and eat plants, people and animals. So you can see how those things kind of lay out. We'll come back to this in a minute. And just uh, one other thing, Genesis one is, is told from the perspective of someone standing on the earth. It's geocentric in that regard. It's somebody standing here and watching all of this unfold. It's not told from any type of heavenly perspective. It's told from somebody standing on the earth. So that's why you get some of the ter- terminology uh, that we'll uh, encounter here. So verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty or void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let the dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seeds in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, that's the sun, obviously, and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And he saw that it was good. And there was evening and morning the fourth day. Then God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. There was evening and morning the fifth day. 
And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kind, the livestock according to their kind, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And here's the climax. Then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air of the livestock over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. So everybody was a vegetarian originally, unfortunately. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So again, very straightforward. Someone standing on the earth, and they see everything being created in succession in these six days. But again, there's lots of controversy. We're not going to delve into all of it. It would take six months for us to weed through it, and even then we would all come out on different sides. You've got to have about 32 PhDs to understand all of the issues that people bring out in this. I'll give you the three major controversies and some places that you can go if you would like to research them further, and I'm just going to kind of skip ahead to what I feel like is the theological truth here for us. So the three major ones, one is how much time is there between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2? Like you may read it and say there's no time, but people will say there's, there's billions of years. It's called the gap theory. There's a lot of time between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. And there's a, there's a bit of a linguistic argument that you can make there if you know Hebrew really well. You can say, yeah, this word is used this way. And and the, the idea is that that allows for billions of years. Science tells us the universe is 15 billion years old. The earth is 4.5 billion years old. If you look at the genealogies in the Bible, less than 20,000 years old. So you've got this discrepancy there. And so what they would say is, well, all of that time is, is placed in between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. There's all this space. God doesn't tell us what was going on. Some people say that's when Satan was kicked out of heaven and he kind of wreaked havoc on whatever whatever existed at that point. And in Genesis 1-2, God is starting over, kind of reforming or recreating the earth. So that's one controversy. How much time is there between Genesis 1 and 2? Big one, how long are the days of creation? Some people will say they're literal 24-hour days. Other people will say they're each an undetermined period of time, hundreds of millions or billions of years. Each one could be a different length. Day in that sense would be used kind of metaphorically, not as a 24-hour day, but just to refer to a period of time. The Hebrew word for day can be either one. It can either be a 24-hour day or an indefinite period of time. And they would say, see, so the, if you believe in 24-hour days, you're called a young earth person. If you believe in the day-age theory is what it's called, each day is an age of unspecified time. You're an old earth person. And then the, the third controversy, which to me is probably the most significant, is what is the, the mechanism of creation? Uh, was it just God's spoken word? Was it just by fiat? Did God just create uh, everything that we read? Did he just create those things kind of out of nothing, by, supernaturally by speaking them? Or 
um, did he use a process, a natural process to do that. It's called theistic evolution, which means God used evolution, but he directed the process to his ends. And so you've got all of those positions, and you can basically mix and match. It's like a buffet. You're going to the Golden Corral, and you can pull out whatever you want. You'll see people all over the map pulling from all of these different positions to kind of create their understanding of what went on in Genesis. Here's a slide. We show that next one with the, yeah. So here's where you can look. You want to know six literal days? Best place to go is answersingenesis.org. Good website, very informative. Uh, if you think more, if you're a billion-year kind of person, then go to that reasons.org. And I'll say both of those websites, they both value the Bible. They both love God. All of those people are going to be in heaven. They're both solid. They're, there's solid stuff there. And then um, I, there's just a good article. That's a really long um, web address. If you want to know it, just I can email you all these slides if you care. Um, but there's a good article, I thought, on just the relationship between Genesis 1 and science in general. But you can absolutely get in the weeds on all of these types of issues. So here's my opinion, and you can take it or leave it. This is not, these are not hills I'm willing to die on. They're not closed-handed issues for me. When, if you want to become a member of our church, I'm not going to ask you for your theology of Genesis 1. And we're not, it's, 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 I don't, it's not there for me. But here's my opinion that you can either agree with or disagree with. When it comes to the timing of creation, I think it's immaterial. I don't think it matters at all. The Bible is unclear on how long it took for all of these things to happen. Ancients, people in, who were first beginning to read the Bible, said it's seven, six days is too long. That's too long. Everything should have happened all at once. And so for them, six literal days was too long. For us, it's too short because we look at science and say, how does all of this stuff happen in six days? Again, the word day in Hebrew, like you, if it's used with a number like first day, second day, it always means a 24-hour day. And yet there's plenty of other places in the Old Testament where it means an indeterminate period of time. The sun wasn't created until the third day. So how do you have evening and morning on day one and two when the thing that creates evening and morning isn't even there until the third day? It's, all of it is confusing, trying to piece all of that stuff together. Science is fluid. Y'all remember the Tyrannosaurus Rex? Here's a picture to scare you. You know, there's debate over whether, uh, on that thing, whether it's a scavenger or a predator, which is not to say anything about scientists. It's just nobody was there. Nobody knows. People say, oh, he was an apex predator and wreaked havoc on all of the other dinosaurs. And other people say, well, you know, his teeth were set in his jaw very shallowly. And if he tried to bite into something, his teeth would have fallen out. So unless they had dentures for T-Rexes, they weren't predators. I don't know. And I, I don't care, honestly. It just shows that science, in a lot of ways, it's fluid, which is not giving any bad motives to scientists. Some of them do have bad motives, but many of them don't. It's just nobody was there. They're working based, their assumptions based on assumptions based on assumptions. And again, it's very difficult to kind of trace all the way through to find out what do we actually know? What's actually solid? And it seems to change with every generation or so as, as more and more evidence comes out and people have different takes on all of that. So again, to me, it's just not a hill worth dying on. I think the Bible is unclear on the timing. You know, there are places where God says, we read, and God said, and then there's two times he says, let the land produce. So what does that mean? Some people who, who are going to go for billions of years are going to see, see, he let the land produce these things. So it was all done over time. Why, why is that different from the times when he said, 
and God said. So I think, again, you can get lost in that, and you can choose to be as forceful in your position as you want. I hold it all pretty open-handedly. Now, when it comes to people, I'm a little more, I feel like that's more important. I'm tighter on the process of creation. Timing to me doesn't matter, but for me, when it gets down to Adam and Eve, that's really important uh, because Romans 5 treats Adam and Adam as the first person who is a real person and that death comes through him. So for me, that's you've got to, whatever your understanding is, if you have if you say anything other than Adam was the first person and he was a real person and sin and death or death entered the world because of his sin, I think you're that's a, that to me is you're beginning to move away from biblical revelation at that point. And ultimately you may say, well, why does that matter? It undermines what Jesus did on the cross. So that's why it's such a big deal. If you read Romans 5, there's this parallel between Adam and Jesus. Adam the first man, Jesus the second Adam, or the second man. Sin comes through Adam, and redemption comes through Jesus. There's a very strong parallel drawn between both of those people. And they're both seen, again, as the head of a race. Adam as the head of the human race, and then Jesus as this second Adam who comes who recreates us. And so if you lose Adam as a historical person, or as the first person, or as the person through whom death comes, then you've done something, you've undermined Jesus' work in some ways. Maybe not intentionally, but that's what's happened. So for me, if you've got this picture of kind of the evolutionary train of man, we have that one? There. Like, I don't know where you put image of God. If we're creating the image of God, is it between? So not the, not the third from the left, that's obviously a monkey. But like third to the fourth, or fourth to the fifth, or... I don't know where you put image of God in that. And I'm not saying that sarcastically. That, for me, is the issue. If we're created in the image of God, and this is your understanding, then I don't know at what point you say the image of God was stamped or imprinted upon humanity. And what does that then mean for everything before? And the bigger issue for me, again, is this whole idea of death. That's my biggest issue with billions of years is if, if sin, if the wages of sin is death, so death enters the world, death enters creation because of sin, then I don't know how you can have death before you have Adam and his sin. I don't have any problem with plants getting eaten for billions of years. That doesn't bother me at all. But for animals and people, I don't know how they die prior to sin entering the world. And so if I'm going to have an issue with billions, that's where it's going to be is, was there death in those billions of years? And if there was death in the billions of years, what was the vehicle? Why? If everything God created was good, then how does death get into the mix before sin is in the mix if sin is a con- if death, excuse me, is a consequence of sin? So that's where for me, that's where things kind of hinge. It's not on whether the Hebrew word for day is 24 hours or not. None of those, I I don't know. I can't, great people who are way smarter than me, who love God and know the Bible, can come down on opposite sides of all of those technical issues. But for me, the key is, do you believe Adam was the first man? Do you believe he was created in the image of God? Do you believe he sinned, and because of his sin, death entered the world? So wherever you're going to come down on everything else, I would say you, you need to come down there, or else it undermines everything Jesus did on the cross. We lose an element of our redemption 
and what he did if somehow sin, if somehow death is not tied to sin. Then the cross makes a lot less sense for us. So that would, that's, I'll hold that out there and you can do what you want with that. If you want to talk about that more, um, Bo is on staff and he'll be more than happy to <laughs> work through all of those things with you. I can give you more books than you can know what to do with if you want to read about it. There's websites, all kinds of things if you want to dig into that more deeply. Again, for me, the key is this, is, it's the end. And what does it look like for humanity? And if you move, if you be, to, the guys that tend to move in these billions of years directions, many of them then move in the direction of saying Adam wasn't a real person. He wasn't a historical figure. He wasn't the first man. And that that, to me, is where things begin to get problematic. So, what does all of this mean for us? One statement, identity precedes activity, activity follows identity. So, maybe you'll consider that two statements or a conjunction. Identity precedes activity, activity follows identity. That's what I want you keeping in your mind as we look at Genesis 1. So, have y'all ever been to the Biltmore House? Anybody? So, biggest house in the United States... 250 rooms, originally 125,000 acres. The guy that that did Central Park did the grounds for the Biltmore House, brought in over a million plants and planted them. Over 1,000 guys worked on it, took six years to build. $5 million in that day dollars, $90 million in our dollars today to build this thing. You know how many people live there? Three! George Vanderbilt, his wife, Edith, and his daughter, Cornelia. And it was their summer house. Not their, it was their summer house. All of that for three people. All of this expense, all of this extravagance, all of this planning, all of this labor for three people. Scientists will tell you there's this thing called the anthropic principle, which says the universe appears to have been created just for us. If you look at the universe, it appears that somebody or something designed it to be suitable for humans to live in, for humanity to dwell. They found there's 38 characteristics of the universe that are, they call them finely tuned. The margin of error is very, very small. If these, con- if these constants are different in just a very small degree, then we don't exist. There's over 150 of those characteristics within our solar system. I'm not going to give them to you because you don't care and I can't understand them, but I've got two that I wrote down. Gravitational force constant to the electromagnetic force constant. But no other church is talking about this this morning. The ratio of, the ratio of those two, two things can't differ in its value by this. One part in 10,000 trillion, trillion, trillion. That's how finely tuned it is. It's not just, oh, we have to have this. It's we have to have this thing, and it's got to be so precise. The most sensitive property is the space energy density. Its value can't vary by more than one part in 10 to the 120th. That's one with the 120 zeros after it. You can't, we don't get that number. It's so big. And there's over 150 of these things, these properties that we all take for granted that if, if they weren't so finely tuned, we wouldn't exist. It's called the anthropic principle. Again, it's this picture that says someone looks like they made everything just perfect.
for us. Scripture tells us this as well. Listen to Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, all that swim in the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have this picture where David's going, why us? You created all of this stuff for us. When you read Genesis 1, the climax is, is the sixth day. It's the creation of Adam and Eve. Humanity is the pinnacle of creation. We're the apex. We're at the, we're at the top. And if you look, again, science from one direction, Scripture from another, they both say the same thing. It looks like, and it doesn't just look like, it is that God created a place for us. He did all of this so that you and I would have a place where we could live, where we could relate to Him, and where we could develop relationship with Him over time. That's what all of this is for. So when I say identity, precedes activity, recognize what that means. I think sometimes about that girl, Cornelia Vanderbilt, and what she had to get lost in her 250 rooms. But if she ever thought, look what dad did for me, just so we'd have a place to go and spend time in the summer. All of this. Multiply that times a billion, and that's what God did for us. When you look out at night and you see all of that, Stars, so you got to leave Atlanta. When you drive up to the mountains and you look out, and you can see the stars. You see the moon. And when you're, as you travel and you do recognize all of that has been created so you would have a place to live. He created all of that out of nothing. It was formless and it was empty. And he brought order and structure and form to it. And then he filled it all for us. It's not an ego thing at all. But I hope what it does is it lets you see your value to him. How precious you are to him. What what psalm is it? We're the apple of his eye. 17, something like that. It says that we're the apple of God's eye. We're the center of what he's created. And again, that's not an ego thing for us, I hope, at all. But I hope it lets you see how precious you are to him. You're not a cosmic accident at all. God created all of this to give you a place to live. He created all this so there'd be a a, a suitable environment in which you can thrive. And so from that, I hope that you can drive some sense of security in who you are in Him. Again, you're not an accident. You're not a mistake. It doesn't matter whether you were planned or not by your parents. You were by Him. And He planned a place and created a place for you. So this idea... That we're just all kind of bumping along and there's no purpose and there's no direction. Genesis 1 says, absolutely not true. He started on day one and however long day one was, he started making everything that was necessary to create a place for us to live. And so if you can grab onto that in your heart, not just in your head, but in your heart, if you can think about 
What does that say about me? Psalm 8. God, who are we that you would think of us in this way? If you can allow that to sink into your heart, who am I? What does it say about me that God would do all of this? Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, not a planet anymore. We'll, we'll include him. What does it say about all of that? Plus every other solar system in the Milky Way, plus every other galaxy in our universe, all made, finely tuned so that we could thrive here on this planet, so that you could thrive January 12th, 2014 in Cobb County. What does that say about your worth? What does that say about your value to him? Can you allow that to sink into your heart? That's your identity as sons and daughters of his. And then coming out of that, this is what we see in Genesis 1. He says, because of that, here's, here's some things I want you to do. Here's some things I want you to go for. Moses, he's the one who wrote the first five books of the Bible. Obviously, he wasn't around when Genesis was written. It was an oral tradition passed down. Moses records it. So what he says through Moses, you created Adam and Eve in the image of God. The image of God is never defined in the, in the scripture. We don't know exactly what that means. That's another thing that people argue about. But one thing that we can see is immediately after saying we're created in the image of God, he then gives an assignment. There's a functional element to what it means to be created in the image of God. Ancient kings, when they took over a land, they would leave a statue of themselves behind to say, hey, remember who runs this. I'm going back to where I'm from, but this is still my land. That's what it means for us to be created in the image of God. He planted us here as, as his representatives to say to all of creation, this is mine, I made this. And these guys are going to rule through me. And then that, that it's called the creation mandate. That's what you see, or the cultural mandate, this idea of be fruitful and multiply. What that means is if you're married and you're biologically able, you should have kids. You're not under any medical, you're not under any scriptural push to do anything medical. But if you're married and you're biologically able, then you have children. That's what it means to be fruitful and multiply. You don't have to worry about the population explosion. It's fine. God's got all of that. You just obey that command to whatever extent you feel led by the Lord uh, to do that. Again, there's no push there to do anything medically beyond. There's no, there's no push there. And then the rest of this, he says, rule and subdue. And we hear those, and those are these very dominating words. But in Genesis 2, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, it adds the, the rest of the story. He says, keep and work. And those words are more like serve and protect. So you have both elements there. You have this kind of aggressive element that we read in Genesis 1. And then in Genesis 2, there's this other element towards creation that says, listen, it's been given to you, and so you need to guard this and protect it and serve it. And so from all of that, you can pull out the idea of stewardship. God's given us this. He said, listen, I want you to run this. I want you to subdue it. So if you think about what that looks like for us is work. God's given all of us work. And you can look at work in a couple of different ways. You can look at what you get paid to do. And as long as it's not immoral, then it's good. I would encourage you to try to think of your work in one of two ways. Are you bringing order out of chaos? Are you taking something that's formless and bringing structure to it? That's one of the things that God did in Genesis. 
Or are you filling something? Are you taking something that, that was empty and you're creating something to put there in that empty space? I think just about every job can be put under one of those two categories. You're either bringing order out of chaos or you're, putting, you're creating something where there was nothing. Don't think about that in a spiritual sense, just in a very kind of earthy sense about your work. That's, that's part of what it means to be created in the image of God. As he says, go and work. I want you to subdue creation. And here's how you do it. You bring order, just like he did. You take something that's formless and you provide form. You take something that's empty and you begin to fill it. Most of our work comes, falls under one of those two categories or helping people to do one of those two things. So there's that element of work. It's your job. It's what you get paid to do. And it's, as long as it's not immoral, again, it's good and it's blessed. And you need to receive that as a place where God has planted you. And you do this work of fulfilling the cultural mandate there. One of the things the church is awful at is affirming people in their jobs. We tend to say, well, that's how you pay the bills. And here's all the important stuff that you have to do on the side. And it completely undermines what you do 40 or 50 or 60 hours a week. Genesis 1, that's, that's not what you see here. You see him sending them out. What, Abraham's first guy, what was his job? I mean, excuse me, Adam's the first guy, what was his job? He was a gardener or a farmer. He worked a plot of land that we will look at in a couple of weeks. And so what we want to do, what I encourage you to do, is to try to find that sense of worth or that sense of value in what you do Monday to Friday from 9 to 5. There's another element of work as well, and it ties into the Great Commission. So this is the cultural mandate. There's also the Great Commission in Matthew 28, go into the world and make disciples. It's great where these things overlap, but they are separate. They're not the same thing. And here at Stonebridge, the way we, the way we talk about you fulfilling the Great Commission is doing your deal. It's Ephesians 2.10, that God's created good works in advance for you to do. And those things may or may not overlap with your job. Again, it's wonderful when they do. But there are times where they don't, and they're biblical examples of both of those things. There was a time where Paul got paid to make tents, and his calling was to preach the gospel to Gentiles. His job was to make tents, and it's good work, and it's honest work, and it paid the bills, and there was life in that for him. And God also said, preach the gospel to the Gentiles. So he was living out both of those commandments at the same time. There are other times, and we see in Scripture, where people were paid as priests. Here, you work in the, here's how you're fulfilling this call of God on your life, and, there's mu- and, and you can get paid to do that. And for some of us, we have the opportunity to do that. For some of us, we don't. That's irrelevant. What I want you to do is I want you to be thinking of your job over here in one hand. Am I bringing order to chaos? Am I, taking, am I creating something where there was nothing? Am I helping other people do those things? The answer is yes. Think about your job in that way. And then over here, I also want you thinking about what are the good works that God has created for me to do that are going to help fulfill the Great Commission. There might be things in my job that are good, but they're not necessarily moving towards God's kingdom coming more fully on earth as it is in heaven. There may be places where there's overlap, but I want you to start thinking about them separately. And then where there's overlap, that's good. But I want you to, again, in your mind, to think of them as two separate things just so you can get clarity on both elements, because you're called in both directions. You have this cultural mandate that was given to everybody. And we also, as Christians, we we follow this great commission that was given to Jesus' followers. On the outside aisle, there's a little card. 
If you're on that last chair, will you grab it? So there are these cards, sheets of paper, and I want you to fill it out. And I want you to leave it on your chair. And Bo is going to follow up with you. That's his first assignment. He is. That's part of what he's doing. And I want to walk you through how to follow, uh, how, how I want you to do this. Now, if you're a guest, you obviously don't need to do this. Um, unless you feel like Stonebridge is going to be the place where you land, then you're more than happy to. Otherwise, you probably don't want Bo following up with you. So I just want your name and your email. And this is what I want you to begin to think about. What's your deal? Like, what are the good works that God has created in advance for you to do? If you don't know, please say you don't know. Don't make something up. Just say, I don't have, an, I don't have any idea. I would rather you not tell me what you do 9 to 5 at this point. I'm trying to keep these things separate just for now. I want you to tell me, what do you think the good things that God has created in advance for you to do? What are those things? How are you participating in the Great Commission? If you can give me the bumper sticker on that, that would be great. And again, if you don't know, just say, I'm not sure. That next question says, what are, are you actively engaged? So I would just say yes or no. Yeah, I'm actively doing this. This is what I feel like my calling is, and I'm actively doing it, or no, I'm not. If you're not, what's the primary reason why? No time, no money, scared, don't feel equipped. What is it that keeps you from engaging in the calling that God has on your life? Obviously, if you don't know what it is, then you're probably not engaged, and that's why. We talk about these seven walls or these areas of influence in our community. Is there one of those? And you feel like, yeah, that's my thing. Science or the medical community, those are together. Again, try not to think about your job unless you say, yeah, I actually feel called to that area. I want to see God's kingdom come into that area of our city. Education, family, the church with a capital C, government, business. Arts, entertainment, culture, media, that whole world. You can just circle that. And the last question, is there a people group that you feel called to? A specific demographic? It can be as niche as what's in your mind. And it may not even be here. It may be Somalian refugees or something. It may not have anything to do with people who are here in Cobb County. Totally felt like y'all were in school today. We talked about science and I, you're filling out paperwork. You're never coming back. good. Just leave it there. Yeah, you can write on the back. Just make sure we can read it, messy handwriters.
All right, so here's how we're going to close. You can finish filling that thing out during this uh, last song if you need to. and Just leave it on your chair, and we'll grab it in between. First of all, I don't want anyone to feel bad if you're like, I don't know. I'm trying to get information just to see where we are. So this is it's very, the more honest you are, the better it is for me, and ultimately I think the better it will be for us because we'll, we'll just know. We'll know where God's at work and the things that we need to do to kind of cooperate with that. As we close, I want you just thinking about a couple of things. One, do you live your life aware of your value and your worth to God? It's just a simple yes or no question. Would you say you live like that? Think about that girl in the Biltmore house again. Do you live like that? Like, God, look at all that you've done, all this that you've created, all of this that you've made, just so I'd have a place to put my feet down. Do you live in light of that? If the answer is no, we'd love to pray with you today. You can't really move forward in, with any sense of momentum in ministry if you're not secure in who you are in Christ. Because what happens is you wind up trying to earn God's favor. Or things don't go well and you think God's mad at you. Without that sense of security, it's very hard. That's why identity has to precede activity. Without having that settled in your heart first, it'll be very difficult to move out from there. So we just want to pray with you. There may be multiple reasons why you may struggle with that. And we just want to pray that God would continue to reveal who you are to him, to your heart, and that you would live out of that. The second thing I would just say is, uh, do you struggle with your work? Is that an issue for you? We'd love to pray with you about that. Your nine to five, is it a wrestling match for you? You, you don't enjoy it, or maybe you're, you're feeling unsettled about whether you need to be. Is there anything around your work that for you is causing you some angst right now? We'd love to pray with you that God would move in that situation. It may be that you just don't see the value in what you do. And we want, we'll just ask God to show you that so that you can see you're not wasting your time. You're participating in this cultural mandate, this creation mandate from Genesis 1. Last thing would be, do you have, if you're struggling with what God is calling you to in terms of these good works, kind of the, this, this, this doing your deal that we call it, if that's difficult for you, if you don't want to fill out the card or have a whole bunch of question marks, we'd love to pray for God to begin to reveal that to you as well. You may already know what your deal is, but you're like, I'm not doing it for whatever reason. We'll pray that God would help you overcome those obstacles. So if any of those things hit you this morning, we would love the opportunity to pray uh, with you and for you. Uh, Bo is going to lead us in one last song. We'll have ministry teams up here in the corners. Those sheets, when you're done, you can just leave them on your chairs and we'll grab them and then Bo will dismiss us after this song. So if y'all would stand, I'll pray for us. a place for us I, I don't, we don't understand all of the processes but we see the end result and it is amazing and God I pray that the truth that we need to hear through creation God I pray that we be attuned to that I pray God that you would show us more and more what it is to be your sons and your daughters 
God, we would live as children, confidently as children. God, I pray for those who are wrestling in career, that you would bring direction and relief and joy and purpose. God, I pray for those who are wrestling with calling and what's that look like in terms of doing these good works that you created in advance for us to do, that you would do the same thing, God, that you bring direction and motivation. God, I think about this creation mandate, bringing order out of chaos and filling what's empty. We want to see that in our community. There's a ton of chaos. And there are lots of gaps and lots of holes. God, I pray that you would use us to bring order and structure and blessing and life where there is none. And I think of the Great Commission, and God, we want you to use us make disciples of all nations as well, so that as many as will, as many as possible, will come into relationship with you. Stir our hearts, God. Show us how to cooperate with your always working spirit. In Jesus' name.